CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasova, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Bonus time in the Ben Jarofsky show. As I speak, it is, what is today? Hold on, let me look at the newspaper. Oh my goodness, Friday, September 3rd. Uh, I'm now going to read a headline that I just found on the internet that's very appropriate for the conversation I'm about to have. And here's the headline. It's from the Inquirer. The Inquirer must be the Philadelphia Inquirer. Anyway, the headline, the FBI break-in that exposed J. Edgar Hoover's misdeeds to be honored with historical marker in media. And then there's a picture of our guest, the guest that we will be just talking to, our distinguished guest, looking perhaps a lot younger than he looks right now. Got a little bit of like a John Denver look in this picture from 1971 with the glasses anyway. I hope I didn't insult him. Uh, distinguished guests, introduce yourself. Uh, hey, I'm Keith Forsythe. Okay, okay what? <laughs> it's not like you're dealing with the FBI, Keith. You can give like a little. Okay, okay. he's a great uh, guitarist, a jazz guitarist, uh, and he's an activist. Uh, and uh, he was... He's known, at least in this article, I'll read you the lead from the article, Keith. Uh, outraged by the Vietnam War, 20-year-old Keith Forsyth dropped out of college in Ohio and moved to Philadelphia to join the vigorous anti-war movement there. He took a lock-picking course so he could help with late-night break. Excuse me. He took a, a lock-picking course so he could help with late-night break-ins at local draft boards where protesters stole or destroyed file, files to disrupt the flow of young Americans to Southeast Asia. That is the lead in the story. Man, that's pretty amazing. Keith Forsythe, uh, in 1971, at age 20, you took a course in lock picking so you could break into local draft boards and eventually he upped his game and he broke into the fbi office and that's what we're going to be talking about the break-in in media pennsylvania of an fbi office that occurred 50 years ago uh there's a documentary made about it keith Forsythe. Uh, it's called 1971 I'm, i know you're aware of that 
And that's how I became first aware of it. Before we take it, uh, go any further, I want to give a shout out to my dear friend, Kevin Blackstone, one of the great sports writers in America. He did a column about Keith and I read the column and I told uh, Kevin, can you hook me up? And Kevin did that. So Kevin, thank you very much. All right, Keith, why don't you, uh, why don't you start uh, by taking us back to 1971 and talk about the events in your life that led you to decide that you wanted uh, to join a crew of people who are breaking in into the FBI office? Um, well, the short version is that uh, in late 68, I belatedly became aware of the reality and the truth of what was happening in Vietnam, and uh, which was that we were conducting a war for empire, and it wasn't anything like what the politicians or the newspapers were saying at the time, and uh, and started getting involved in the peace movement. Uh, as you said, in, in 1970, I left Ohio to come to Philadelphia, where the peace movement was much uh, stronger, and it was easier to be you know, to be more active, uh, eventually got connected with what people refer to as the Catholic left, although a lot of us weren't Catholic, uh, that was taking direct action in draft boards around the country. Um, that, that group of people and other like-minded people, uh, destroyed or stole records in over 300 draft boards in the United States in those days. Um, and through the course of that work, I met, uh, a fellow by the name of Bill Davidon, who was a well-known leader of uh, both the legal and the illegal peace movements in the Philadelphia area. And um, Bill uh, invited me for a chat and said, uh, asked me if I'd be interested in breaking into an FBI office so we could uh, steal files and send them to the newspaper so the public would know what we already knew, which was the FBI was not acting as a legitimate uh, law enforcement agency in those days. It was trying to disrupt and uh, and intimidate all movements of, for social change. So uh, it was Bill's idea originally. Uh, we he recruited some a small group of people that he felt were trustworthy and um, not really sure why he asked me. I was much younger, uh, except that I he did know that I was pretty good with my hands and I knew how to pick locks. So that's probably why. Uh, and so we, uh, we started meeting, uh, you know, surveilling the area. We looked at a couple different draft boards. I mean, excuse me, not draft boards, a couple different FBI office and finally settled on the one in media Pennsylvania is the one we would go after their security was terrible. Um, and, so uh, after much preparation uh, on the night of the Ali Frazier fight, um, uh, I went in to open the door. There was some major drama involved in that that wasn't anticipated, but eventually I got through a secondary door. Um, and uh, then the, the, the people that, whose job it was to actually remove the files went in, filled up a bunch of suitcases, um, came out to the street, loaded the suitcases, and off we went. Um, and then um, we spent the next several – you, you want to stop right there? Yeah, I want to stop because uh, you've, you've offered a lot. Uh, and I just need folks to absorb what he just thought to offer. Uh, so let's just, just pause, folks, and think about this. This guy, a hippie in 1971 – uh, and hit freak, not hippie. I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Wait, 
that may be a distinction lost on many of our listeners. Uh, but I, I, I'm old enough to understand the distinction. So I apologize. Okay. To thank freaks you. everywhere <laughs> and hippies, by the way. Uh, I apologize to both sides on that dispute. Anyway, he was a freak. Some people say hippie freak, uh, which some you might think is a contradiction in terms. But anyway, be that as it may, a freak uh, in 1971 broke into, with a bunch of lefties, broke into an FBI office, which is a pretty scary, daunting thing. So before you just move on with the story as though, Keith, you were just recalling how you put your boots on this morning, talk about <laughs> how scary that must have been. And we'll get into the significance of Ali Frazier because millennials don't know what the hell you're talking about when you say Ali Frazier. Muhammad Ali, the greatest fighter of all time, was boxing Joe Frazier. Uh, it was the fight of the century, so a lot of attention was diverted on that. Keith, I'm going to do everything I can to withstand my impulse to go discuss the Ali Frazier fight of 1971 and stick to the issue. Uh, so weren't you, weren't you scared? Weren't you daunted by this? Uh did you fear on the uh, night before that you would end up at Leavenworth? Well, I mean, it, you know, you have to remember that everybody in this group had already broken into more, uh, at least one, and in some cases, several draft boards in the middle of the night and stole records. So if, if you keep doing that kind of thing, I mean, you, you would be extremely lucky if you got away with it forever. Um, so getting caught was, you know, definitely something that you had already thought of, uh, before this, before the, the FBI action happened. And we, we did everything we could to make ourselves safe. Um, and, uh, we were pretty good at it if I do say so myself, because we never got caught. Uh, but, um, sure. I was scared, uh, that, but, um, you know, sometimes you got to do what you got to do. The scariest part was when I was in the midst of picking a lock and I heard a noise inside the office. Um, and I couldn't tell if it was somebody moving around or the heat coming on. Um, so that was a little nerve wracking. But, um, you know, there it is. You said you do everything you could to make uh, yourself safe. And yet you're breaking into an FBI office. What are some of the things you did to make yourself safe? So when we were doing our surveillance of the area, um, everybody involved in surveillance had uh, a conservative haircut, conservative clothes. Um, uh, we were all white, which helped. Uh, uh, we, uh, you know, we always wore gloves. Uh, you know, when we were like a couple of us, you know, had to go into the building to do some inside surveillance. One of the members, Bonnie, actually went into the FBI office during office hours to ask them about job opportunities for women in the FBI. Um, and she was in disguise and she was actually casing the joint to see what their um, file cabinet locks and alarm system looked like. Um, and she had two small children at home, so she had uh, some serious guts. Um, and so we always wore gloves, obviously, during the lock picking and the removal of the files, we wore gloves so we didn't leave any fingerprints. And in those days, there was no DNA technology. So it was it was pretty much fingerprints. Um, you know, we we looked so, quote, normal, unquote, when we came out of the building that there was a security guard in the courthouse watching us load the files into a car. 
And he, he later on, when he was interviewed by the FBI, he didn't even remember seeing us. That's how unobtrusive we were. So this is an example, a textbook example, uh, ladies and gentlemen, of, of white privilege being put to some unusual youth. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> turning it on top of his head. Uh, so, okay. So I, and this is a detail that perhaps I've watched, uh, too many, uh, spy movies and read way too many detective stories, but picking a lock. So you're picking a lock to the FBI office. I mean, what do you, do you my, like, I could just see like, um, Jake Giddis from Chinatown, you know, he has this little uh, key that he picks out. And, I mean, how do you do that? What, what, what kind of tool do you use? And, you know, what's the procedure? Um, well, it's, it's really not hard. Uh, it's, um, you know, it's, uh, it's much easier than playing a musical instrument. Well, uh, you just, there are some basic techniques. I really don't need to get into it here, but you you get yourself a couple of simple tools, which in my case I made myself, so they wouldn't be traceable through any store. Uh, and you get yourself some old locks um, from the junk store, and you practice a little bit. And before long, you can get through just about any regular pin tumbler lock in thirty seconds or less. Wow, it's not hard. You could do it. I doubt that, but whatever, we'll move on. Thank you for that compliment. Uh, so while you were picking the lock, what were your Confederates doing? The other six people, were they huddled behind you or were they waiting in a car somewhere? Oh, oh no, 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 bad, bad security. You know, you never put more people at risk at once than you have to. Okay. Um, so I was by myself. Everybody else was in a, most of the people were in a motel room three miles away. Uh, a couple of people were in cars outside. Um, uh, uh, blocking cars in case, you know, I needed to make a run for it and they could, you know, block the street, that kind of thing. So it was just me until I got the doors open. Then I, you know, taped the lock back and left. And then they came in. Ah, you pulled a Watergate. Do you know what about the Watergate break-in? <laughs> oh yeah. The, in, in the Watergate break-in. Uh... I was not involved in that, by the way. <laughs> just to be clear. Okay. In any... <laughs> Hey, Nixon, you could have used Keith Forsyth, okay? Uh, in the Watergate break-in, uh, uh, some henchmen for Richard Nixon uh, broke into the Watergate apart, uh, hotel complex in Washington, D.C. to get uh, access to files uh, in the Democratic uh, headquarters. But that's they did the same thing. They put the tape over the door, and that's how ultimately they were discovered. So uh, if I get this straight, Keith... You left, so you were not part of the group that actually uh, pilfered the files. Am I correct in that? That's right. I was sitting outside in a car waiting. Now, why didn't you get to do that? Everybody had a job. Um, and um, so uh, some people, uh, you know, had, we all, we all did casing, uh, surveillance. Uh, we all were involved in planning, but some people you know, we're doing the blocking car thing. Some people were inside crew. I was the person who was, you know, getting us in. Um, and so, uh, you know, we, we like this, you know, division of labor. Got it. By the way, just think about this 1971, how things are different. No alarm, no cameras. In other words, there were no security right. cameras. You, you want to hear a funny story about that? Go ahead. So the, the, the resident agent in charge, realized that their security was terrible 
and he sent a memo to headquarters asking for some more money in his budget to um, get uh, put locks on the safes and get better security for the office. And his boss, who was Mark Felt, who later became Deep Throat, said no. <laughs> um, <laughs> wow. Okay, uh, let's just pause. Uh, Mark Felt was the uh, number th three man at the FBI, ladies and gentlemen, uh, who, as uh, Keith said, oh, my God, this is so weird and wild and twisted. Um, yep. He... Uh, I don't know how much actual information he gave Bob Woodward. Who knows what the real story is because there's so much fabrication going on on all sides. But he uh, passed on some information that was helpful to Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein when they were doing their legendary Watergate investigations that ultimately led to uh, Richard Nixon stepping down. Uh, but at the same time, he was on the outlook for people like Keith Forsyth who would be breaking into uh, <laughs> FBI headquarters. A lot of bizarre twisted irony in that. Don't you agree, Keith? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and Mark Felt himself, I don't know if you knew this, uh, would later uh, be arrested and tried for uh, breaking into um, various anti-war activists' uh, homes and businesses and stuff. And I think he was, his sentence commuted by Ronald W. Reagan. I think he was, uh, Keith. Anyway, uh, I go on a tangent of Mark Felt. So uh, were you part of the crew? So by the way, did you know about the Mark Felt e uh, uh request because of documents you took from the media office? Uh, no, that came out. So many years later, when the journalist Betty Metzger um, uh, wanted to write a book and talked us into breaking our silence, uh, she did uh, extensive history, uh, studying of history and reading of literally an entire room stacked wall to wall and floor to ceiling with FBI files. And she wrote a book called The Burglary, which is a fantastic uh, history book. And she, this is one of the little tidbits that she found out. Um, so uh, anyway, so were you so you were not in the, the, the building when uh, to take the files. But were, did you get to participate in looking at the files uh, in the aftermath? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We all did that, too. Yeah. Yeah. We drove to a remote location, um, a farmhouse and. Um, and uh, started uh, sorting the files out into categories, uh, in prep, you know, preparatory to deciding, you know, how to distribute them. And and so I'm putting my, the way I would be at that time under you guys, maybe you're cooler and calmer. I'd be like, oh my God, can you freaking believe this? We just broke into the FBI headquarters. Were people jubilant like that or were you guys much more somber and serious? Yes. Oh, oh no, we were, we were not somber. No, we were like, <laughs> Yo, <laughs> we're not busted. We did it. Dude, <laughs> yeah, we were pretty happy. Folks, if you actually know what a freak is from back in the day, that is the ultimate <laughs> freak act. Dude, we broke into the FBI. Uh, so you open up these files, you're going through them. What were some of the things that you discovered as you were uh, reading through these Again, folks, these are the files, FBI files, the kind of stuff they would never show you in a million years. They'll, they got a TV show called the FBI that promotes the FBI as the greatest friend to America you could possibly imagine. Uh, but they won't tell you the real story, which are buried in these files. So what did you imagine you would find in the files and what did you actually find? So, you know, we I don't think we really imagined that we would find anything we were hoping that they were like bureaucrats everywhere and they write down everything they do, even the bad stuff. Um, 
and that turned out to be the case. Um, so uh, what the the first thing that we found was that, and I don't, I no longer remember the exact split, but roughly speaking, uh, half of their time was spent chasing small time criminals like car th- car thieves, and the other half of their time was spent trying to intimidate the new left. Um, and, um, so there was nothing absolutely zip in the files about like organized crime or any, the kind of thing that you would think a national police force actually should be looking into. And I, I spoke to an ex FBI agent many years later about this. And I said, what's up with the car theft? And he said, that's so that, you know, Hoover could jack up his conviction statistics. Uh, and you know, make it look, make the FBI look good because those people were easy to convict. Um, but they were literally spending in this office roughly half their time uh, snooping on uh, people, and not just snooping on them, but they would send uh, fake letters to people in different movement groups if they found out there was tension between, um, you know, let's say the Black Economic Development Conference and the Panthers, they would send them both letters purporting to be by the other side, um, you know, uh, intending to stir up trouble, you know, call, you know, calling people names, saying so-and-so sleeping with your wife, uh, so-and-so's an informer. Um, and uh, they succeeded in making at least one person in Philadelphia area fear for his life. Uh, it turned out his life wasn't actually under threat, but the FBI convinced him it was, and he, he left town. Um, and one of the interesting things about the files, I don't know if it was in these files or if it was in files that came out later once, uh, because a lot of these files produced information that led to other information. Mm-hmm. So after, after the press and started bringing heat on the FBI for what was revealed, and then belatedly Congress got into the act, then the Freedom of Information Act uh, started producing more and more paper. And um, there's a whole lengthy story about that that's in the book. I won't go into it now. But uh, once the information about COINTELPRO, which was their core of their disruption program, came out they they um hoover required every fbi agent in the country to have at least i i can't remember if it was at least one or if it was at least two informants uh in the black community and he suggested that good places to recruit them were bars uh churches uh and barber shops um so they we're doing wholesale surveillance of the black community. We're not talking about just the Black Panther Party or uh, you know anybody like that. It was black people across the board. They were surveilling, and these uh, informants were supposed you know wrote up reports which, for which they got paid, and those all went into FBI files. So they were massively surveilling uh, anybody black as in addition to anybody who was protesting anything. I'm going to take a moment to have a brief interruption uh, to go on a tangent. Uh, the 
points I'm about to make are mine. I don't know if Keith Forsyth will agree with me. Folks, I just want to point out that you're getting a lot of, uh, you're hearing a lot of hysterical sobbing for MAGA these days. They don't want to take the vaccine. They think it's an uh, unnecessary intrusion into their liber- liberties, their sacred liberties. And I always like to point out that nobody, even remotely related to the MAGA movement, to Donald John Trump, was... Uh, coming to the aid of the black community back in 1970 and 1971, when the FBI, you talk about intrusion, Keith Forsyth, you talk about trampling on people's uh, sacred constitutionally protected liberties, what the FBI was doing to ordinary black people and black leaders and doing it in the, in the name of what, I don't know what the name was, but I didn't see anybody from MAGA coming to their defense. And it's, I just find it so profoundly, hysterically funny actually that all of a sudden that this uh in 2021 50 years later they're sobbing about their liberties i apologize keith for that tangent that political uh did you agree with i just said by the way i mean i think it's true that that uh you know people not just the group you mentioned but lots of people are pretty uh hypocritical about when they talk about freedom freedom for who uh, and freedom for what uh, and from what, uh, I think a little more consistency would be um, <laughs> would be welcome. Yes, MAGA. Hear that? Keith Forsythe. You should have been on his side back in 1971. All right. Um, and uh, you mentioned uh, COINTELPRO, and uh, that, of course, was the counter, uh, the, the FBI's uh, surveillance of anti-war activists, uh, black leaders, and uh, Fred Hampton here in even the, the women's. Go ahead. What you say? Even the women's movement, the yeah. women's movement too. Yeah. Anything left? Uh, and uh, Fred Hampton, of course, was one of the victims uh, of that. Um, That's right. Uh, uh, that espionage. And if you want to read, know more about it, you of course can watch uh, the movie that just came out about it, um, Judas and the Black Messiah. All right. Uh, so. How did you, you had all this information, you had these files, you had these secrets uh, revealing what the FBI was up to. The next step was to get the public aware of it. How did you accomplish that? So the first step was to take a a sample of of, uh, some of the files showing some of this um, surveillance and also active disruption and and, uh, interference with movements, make photocopies and... um, send them to uh, George McGovern and Perrin Mitchell, two members of Congress that we thought might be willing to stand up against the FBI. Uh, We were wrong about that. They turned the the documents over to the FBI. So then we sent them, uh, (laughs) then we sent them to, uh, yeah. Uh, Then we sent them to the New York Times and to the Los Angeles Times and to the Washington Post. So that's a whole interesting story there. But very briefly, the person we sent him to in the New York Times was a columnist. He felt this was a story for a newspaper, you know, for a a news reporter. He turned him over to a news reporter and the news reporter he turned him over to uh, didn't want to write anything this bad about the FBI. So he sat on the story. Uh, the Los Angeles Times, they went to Scoop Nelson. Unfortunately, there was an FBI agent, uh, I mean, an FBI informant uh, working for the Los Angeles Times, whose job was to read all of Scoop's mail before he saw it. And 
the informant grabbed this document, these documents, and uh, took them to the FBI. And Nelson never found out about it until like 40 years later when Betty Metzger told him. Wow. So now we're down to the last big mainstream newspaper, which was the Post. We sent him to Betty Metzger. Uh, she was not actively under surveillance by the FBI. She was too young and, and non-influential, I guess. Um, and uh, she immediately, uh, you know, first thing she did was to, you know, call up the FBI and ask if these were real or a hoax. And they said, yes, they're real. Send them back right now. And she said, I don't think I'm going to do that. And there was a big struggle within the post, but eventually they decided to publish. And um, against very strenuous pushback from Attorney General Mitchell and the Justice Department. Uh, and then once they had the guts to publish, then everybody else jumped on the bandwagon. Wow. And this is this is profoundly ironic, even more so, Keith, uh, hearing this story, because I'll go back and tie together things we've been talking about. The uh, I'm sure the, the, the discussions and debates that they were having at the Washington Post paralleled the ones they would have in about a year or so when they were uh, digging into, and Woodward and Bernstein were digging into uh, Nixon's crimes against the Democrats at the Watergate Hotel. Follow, follow me on this with uh, John Mitchell making all kinds of threats to the publisher of the Washington Post, and uh, the Post weren't wondering if they were crossing the line and they were going too far. And the bizarre thing is the man from the FBI <clears throat> who was uh, probably investigating to see who broke into the offices and media and was trying to stop them from uh, spreading their information was the same man, Mark Felt, who was digging, giving information uh, to the Washington Post to undercut Nixon. So the FBI was playing both sides of it. Yeah, interesting, huh? Yeah, and, and the, the Pentagon Papers came in between those two actions, and I, I, I think it made it, the fact that they went through this argument for our documents made it a little easier for them to decide to publish the Pentagon Papers. Yeah. Yours was like a, a dry run, a, a test run, if you will. Uh, and so uh, got to give uh, uh, Betty Mesker a lot of credit. That's a lot of guts for a young reporter. At the yeah, Washington I mean, Post. you know, think about this. We sent them to two members of Congress who were supposedly on the, you know, the most progressive members. Uh, and then we sent them to three mainstream newspapers. Um, and out of those five, uh, uh, you know, authority figures, establishment figures, four of them caved to the FBI. And, you know, if we had, you know, obviously, you know, our, our fallback position was to send the information to the alternative press. But, you know, how many people in the United States, you know, read the rat or the burning river news? Not many. So uh, really the chance to get this out to the American public it was such a squeaker. If the Post hadn't done it, you know, who knows what would have happened. The whole sequence of events in the church committee hearings and all that may never have happened if they didn't have the guts to stand up and publish. Yeah, I give him credit for that, but I'm now going to stand up for the alternative press as a guy who's made his work for the alternative press for his entire life. Keith Forsythe, at least my adult <laughs> life, working for the reader here in the city of Chicago. I think ultimately, even if you'd gone to the hippie press, Chicago Seed or whatever, it would have gotten out right. because there would have been some hippie type reporter for the mainstream paper, you know, like a guy who's maybe in his late right. 20s, uh, long right. hair, 
you know, listens to the Fugs or whatever, and he would have said, "Oh, I gotta, I gotta go." Carl Bernstein would have read it in the alternative newspaper and wanted to go. So I think, I think you, uh, you short, I don't, you're not giving the alternative press enough love there. All right, uh, let's move on from that. <laughs> My defense of the alternative press. Hey, I had to defend the alternative press to a freak. I, How about that, I love. I love the alternative press. I'm just saying their readership was not the same as the Washington Post. I, I, I know that. I'm very well aware of that, having labored it for the alternative press for my entire life. All right. Um, we are not the Washington Post. Uh, so the um, so you give the story. It comes out uh, in the Washington in the Post. Meanwhile, Keith, I presume the FBI is looking for who broke in the media, the media building. Am I correct? <laughs> They were. They had somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 agents on the task force. Damn. Well, I don't know whether to be uh, impressed that you guys are really depressed about the FBI. 200 agents? They couldn't find you? I, I think it's some from column A, some from column B. Uh, because, like I said, we were careful. We, you know, we Part of the initial conversation was... Nobody was invited to join this group or even be told about it unless we were pretty sure they were the kind of person who could keep their mouth shut. Um, and there were a lot of wonderful people in the movement at that time who were great people, did a lot of good work, made a lot of great sacrifices, but could not keep their lips closed. Uh, and so they were not invited to participate. Um, so we, we, we made a vow and we stuck to it for all those years. Um, so that helped. Uh, the other thing that helped was there were too many suspects. I mean, it, you know, in those days, you know, the a lot of the you know movements for for uh, full rights for black people and against the war in Vietnam and for rights for women and other things like that, it was a big movement. There were lots of people who participated. Um, it was not just you know you know ten people. It was thousands in Philadelphia alone. So there was an awful lot of suspects. And the other thing that helped us to your other point is that the FBI was, you know, was really a one man show. I mean, Hoover was a megalomaniac and he didn't want people who thought for themselves. He wanted yes men. And he decided that it had to be that the, the people who broke into the FBI office had to be uh, the people in the Catholic left and which in a way it was. Uh, but it had to be uh, a fellow by the name of John Peter Grady, who was a great guy and a and a major force in the in the Catholic left. But for for whatever reason, Hoover decided that this was Grady's action, and so a lot of their resources went into trying to verify that theory, which was you know wrong because Grady didn't even know about it. Hmm. Now, did you ever have a moment uh, back in '71? Uh, where you'd be, I don't know, at a, a restaurant or a party or something, uh, and you'd be hearing people talk about the break-in. Uh, and the th Many times. And you had to keep that big yapper shut. You couldn't say anything. I couldn't even smile. In fact, I had, I had an occasion once where somebody told me in confidence that they were part of it. Uh, <laughs> except they weren't. <laughs> That's hilarious, Keith. That's like kind of like yeah, it was all, pretty the, funny. all the people say they were at Woodstock. If all the people were at That's Woodstock right. could say they were at Woodstock to bring back 10 million. And by the way, Woodstock is so overrated, but Keith, I'm going to avoid. Hey, wait down. a minute. Now, wait a minute. 
I was at Woodstock and Jimmy's performance of the Star Spangled Banner was one of the great moments of my life. So don't be dissing Woodstock. I w- okay. I, I, I will make that concession. Jimi Hendrix, Carlos Santana, Sly and the Family Stone, and Sha Na Na. And the rest of it was awful. All right. There we go. Enough Woodstock talk. Uh, those are the four people worth watching at Woodstock. Um, Wow, so that is so deep, Keith. I mean, it's just think about how hard that must have been not to brag about it or confide in a moment of weakness to a friend, you know, or even just because you're paranoid. You're, you're like you're worried that the FBI could be snooping on you or right around the door. But w- w- did you have those feelings of paranoia and fear at the time? Um, I, you know, I wouldn't say paranoia. I mean, when when I left the farm. Um, I made myself scarce for a little while, you know, for a week or so just to see, you know, I called up home and said, Hey, uh, have there been any cops uh, around lately? <laughs> that kind of thing. And, but everything was quiet. So just went back to daily life. When you say you left the farm, what do you mean? Well, we were, you know, we were at this farm where we were sorting the documents. Ah, I see. Uh, that was our that was our short term headquarters while we were doing the sorting and deciding who was going to you know who was going to get sent what, uh, and once that work was completed, there really you know my job was really done, um, and so I I you know went back to to Philadelphia. Now uh, my particular obsession of all the documents that you uh, discovered uh, at the, in those files uh, is the COINTEL probe. And uh, I've had this obsession, uh, Keith, if I must share this with you, for years, uh, how the FBI uh, conspired to kill Fred Hampton uh, and to spy on Martin Luther King and try to drive him to suicide. Uh, And it's just outrageous history uh, that folks should know more about, I think. Did you see any files related to those particular events at all? I'm just curious if you, like, stumble upon any of those at that that time? No, we didn't. Uh, There was, like... a very spare document that mentioned COINTELPRO, but didn't say what it was. Um, and so this is another case of where it's, it, you know, everybody's a link in a chain. You know, we, we, we did our part, but a lot of other people did important parts too. And uh, uh, Carl Stern later picked up that thread and ran with it and, and really was the one who brought out all the stuff about COINTELPRO. And, you know, to your point about what happened to Fred Hampton and Mark Clark, they still haven't released all those files from those, you know, from that, that time and what the reason, you know, there's no rational reason why they can't release those files, you know, more than 50 years later, except to cover their ass. Yes, absolutely. Which from their perspective is a rational reason. Uh, all right. Right. Uh, but it's not from anybody (laughs) else's perspective. Um, so, Eventually, uh, the story got out. How long before people realized that you, Keith Forsyth, was involved in the break-in? See, well, if you mean the general public, that would have been about five years ago. Um, So uh, in the, I believe it was the the 90s, you know, sometime long after the burglary and long before now, uh, John and Bonnie uh, told Betty Metzger that they were involved. Uh, well, strictly speaking, John told told Betty Metzger that they were involved. 
Uh, and um, Betty had no idea up until that time. And that's when she said, you know, this is one of the great stories uh, in American history. I, you know, I want to write a book. Will you cooperate? And so, you know, that was the first time really as a group, we were in touch with each other for decades. Um, and so, uh, you know, I talked it over with John and Bonnie and with Bill and they seemed to think it was a good idea. And I thought about it. And so that's when we decided to let our names be used in the book and the documentary film. And, uh, did the FBI try to prosecute after all those years? No. Uh, the, uh, so, um, they did not. And, uh, somebody involved in the, in the process, I don't know if it was Betty or her publisher, somebody called the FBI and asked for a comment. And I don't have the exact text, but their PR office said something like, this was an important uh, milestone in the FBI's modernization and professionalization and you know, moving towards accountability and stuff. So they were the, their, their statement about it was um, surprisingly uh, supportive. Wow. What do you make of that? I don't know what to make of that. I, I, you know, I can tell you that, you know, uh, the FBI obviously is, is, you know, not perfect and has, has done some things in recent years in terms of surveilling people that they had no business surveilling, but they're not having people assassinated anymore. I mean, that, uh, things have changed, you know, uh, uh, and, they are definitely more accountable and more uh, more compliant with the rule of law than they were in those days. There's no question about that. Uh, and I'm sure it's like any other organization. There's people in there who really, really want to do the right thing and other people who not so much. Um, so um, I'm not sure exactly what to make of it. <laughs> Is Jagger's, I, I don't know the answer to this question. Is Jagger Hoover's name still on their uh, national building in Washington, their headquarters? I don't know either, but I think so. I think so. Okay. So not quite ready to make that break yet. Uh, that's right. That's you know, right. all right. So since you're, uh, you were outed, so to speak, uh, as the locksmith, uh, in this endeavor, um, What's been the reaction like? Are there, there were there people who turned their back and you said you you scum, or and conversely, were there people who look at you as a hero? What has been the reaction of people that know you when they find out that you're one of the guys uh, in this break? Um, overwhelmingly positive. Um, that the guys in the band teased me mercifully. I when I came to practice for the first time after this came out, I said something to somebody and they go, wait a minute, I'm not talking to you until I check for microphones, you know, like <laughs> that kind of stuff. You know? uh, uh, most people, you know, people, people that I knew back in those, yeah, people that I knew back in those days, you know, family members who were, were on the opposite side as me on just about every political issue. Mm -hmm. Uh, when this came out, they were surprisingly supportive. They're like, yeah, the FBI shouldn't have been doing that stuff. That was wrong. Um, and I think, you know, probably their view was somewhat colored by the fact that they knew me. Um, but um, I think the reaction would have been different if we'd gotten caught in 1971 than it was when we came out in, you know, um, 2015 or whatever it was. It's, it's much easier to, uh, 
to admire somebody 50 years after the fact. But you'd have been in jail. You've been in prison. Yeah. I'd probably still be in jail. <laughs> Which is the bizarre irony. Uh, one more irony here. Yeah. You'd, you'd be, people would be pleading with some governor or, or some president to let you out. Maybe Trump would have let you out, you know, because he kind of turned against <laughs> <laughs> you know, he, he turned against the FBI when they were investigating him. So he, he right, he he, he let uh, our former governor Rob Blagojevich out of prison. So he, why not the media seven or whatever you guys are? Um, <laughs> so to top it all off, there was an unveiling. Uh, that's the story that I was uh, reading. A uh, account of the unveiling. And why don't you take it away, uh, Keith, and talk about the unveiling that just took place? So um, there was a, a, a young person living in media uh, who uh, didn't know about the story uh, until fairly recently. Like, I don't remember exactly, but, you know, a couple of years ago, he, he found about, out about it and, and had lived his whole life there and had never heard about it. So he, he got interested and he decided this should be a, a state historical marker in front of this building to mark this event because it was really important. So he went around and got support from a bunch of political figures like the state senator and all kinds of people and got the Pennsylvania State Historical Commission to agree to put up a historical marker in front of the old FBI office. Um, and um, it took a tremendous amount of persistence on his part, but he got it done. And then you know, the, originally it was going to be unveiled on the 50th anniversary, but COVID uh, put the kibosh on that. Uh, but eventually it, it happened just this past Wednesday. Uh, and it mentions COINTELPRO uh, and how, you know, we were the, you know, sort of the, the uh, keystone to revealing that uh, and putting a stop to it. Um, so it was, um, it was, uh, it was nice. You know, I mean, people will read about it. They'll, they'll, hopefully they'll dig into it. And, you know, that conversation about, you know, secrecy, uh, and about, uh, you know, government surveillance and, you know, freedom versus security and all that kind of, all those issues, you know, those, those are going to be things that we're going to debate till the end of time. Um, and I, I, uh, I, I wish they were debated more than they are. Um, and I think, you know, we've got, we've got a guy, uh, Ed Snowden, who did a very similar thing, uh, revealing the, the NSA's, uh, warrantless surveillance of American citizens, um, shortly after Clapper went on TV in front of Congress and flat out lied saying they weren't doing it. Um, and, uh, you know, he was very careful in how he, you know, what information he revealed and how he revealed it. He was extremely cautious about not doing anything to cause harm to individuals uh, or not doing anything to, you know, lend any kind of support, however tangential to, you know, terrorists or things like that. He was super careful and he did us all a tremendous service and he does not want to stay in Russia. And, you know, he needs to get, you know, he needs to at least get uh, the promise of a genuinely fair trial, um, and not over bogus treason charges, um, which they, you know, they say, oh, he, he gave the Russians, uh, you know, 
sensitive information, but we can't tell you what it was. Well, if he already gave it to the Russians, why can't you tell us? I mean, that's obvious baloney. Yeah. Um, so bring, bring Ed Snowden home. Uh, and uh, on uh, to that point, I'd like to just to say, I agree with you on that point, And I want to thank you. Uh, at a very young age, you put your entire livelihood on the line uh, to do something very scary, which I, in a million years, would not have had the guts to do, Keith. Uh, I wouldn't have gone to Woodstock either, but that's a whole other. That's because I have good taste, but uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> except for Jimi Hendrix and Carlos Santana and uh, Sly and the Family Stone. But anyway, uh, you put your life on the line, and uh, and what you exposed uh, the Cointel Pro program. It, it, you did a service, in my humble opinion. This is one guy in Chicago speaking, but you did a service because the more we know about that, the better off we are. And so thank you for putting your uh, life on the line, your neck on the line, a real gutsy thing that you did. So just one guy in Chicago saying thank you, Keith Forsythe. Oh, you're welcome. It needed to be done. And, and you know, it's this is the kind of thing that governments will do if they think they can get away with it. So we have to be on the ball and watching them all the time. All right. Very good. That's Keith Forsythe. And before I let you go, you want to give a shout out to your band? Uh, you know, he's a, he's a jazz guitarist, ladies and gentlemen. Is a, uh, I try to, um, are you going to come? Ray Wright's Jazz Lab, Ray Wright's Jazz Lab Project and second band, Jazz Head. Jazz Head. Okay. He's a, <laughs> yeah, all, the, we we could call ourselves the Geezers Jazz Band, but but we don't because it doesn't sound as good. No, it doesn't. Uh, and you're young at heart anyway. All right, uh, Keith Forsythe, thank you very much. You're welcome. All right, that's Keith Forsythe. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. find cars like these on auto trader new cars used cars electric cars maybe even flying cars okay no flying cars but as soon as they get invented they'll be on auto trader just you wait auto trader